This episode of the Gondrepreneur Podcast is made possible by 420 friendly service providers in the Gondrepreneur Business Directory. If you need professional help with your business, from accounting to legal services to consulting, marketing, payment processing, or insurance, visit gondrepreneur.com slash businesses to find service providers who specialize in helping cannabis entrepreneurs like you. Visit the Gondrepreneur Business Directory today at gondrepreneur.com slash businesses. Hey there, I'm your host, T.G. Brandfault, and thank you for listening to the Gontrepreneur.com podcast, where we try to bring you actionable information and normalize cannabis through the stories of gontrepreneurs, activists, and industry stakeholders. Today, I'm joined by Brad Bogus. He's the Vice President of Marketing for Confident Cannabis, uh, makers of a really, really cool software called Connect, uh, and we're going to talk a lot about that. He's the former general manager of the cannabis, and uh, he's a fellow punk rock enthusiast. Uh, how are you doing this afternoon, man? I'm doing great, TG. Thanks for having me on, man. Yeah, no, we, we, we've already had a chance to sort of connect, look at connect, no pun intended there. Um, <laughs> but before we talk about that, man, tell me about you, you know, how'd you end up in the cannabis space, uh, you know, first with the cannabis and now, you know, the vice president of marketing for, for confident cannabis. Yeah, it's, it's, it's really kind of a weird and storied path because, uh, when you were talking about, uh, punk rock enthusiasm, I, I started off really essentially as a straight edger. <laughs> uh, so the, when, when people that I went to college with know what I'm doing now, they tend to look at me with a sort of like head cocked to the side, like, what the fuck are you doing? <laughs> cannabis. And, uh, you know, so, uh, I, I did a lot of, um, my own stuff. I, I, I started two companies and ran them for like collectively 11 years. Um, I, I never really set out to be a business owner. I was, I've always been an artist, but um, I, I tend to follow certain paths that kind of interest me in media and content and all of uh, the storytelling things that I've loved about art. I found an application for in the corporate world uh, by, you know, making commercial video productions or online content media and I don't know. After a while, I just sort of got bored with it. I didn't really like have any intentions of doing that forever. I was just doing it. And I got to a point where I was like, I'm done doing this. What do I want to do next? Um, and it felt like, you know, the appropriate next step was to try getting a job. I hadn't done that before. And, um, and to do it at a company that I actually really cared for because I had, uh, uh, you know, at that, when you're an entrepreneur, you, you don't really worry so much about like, you know, I need to take any position that comes my way. You're like, I can, I can make this my, on my own if I need to, but I'm going to take the right position. And so I had talked with a mentor of mine. Uh, I wasn't super excited about the Austin tech scene, really, or the tech scene in general. Um, that industry seemed busted and uh, full of all sorts of issues with sexism and, you know, diversity problems. And just like it was, you know, stodgy and awful. Everything else around me seemed really uninteresting. And a mentor of mine was just like, just pick an industry that you actually think is really cool. And I had been using cannabis for a long time. I knew a lot about it. Um, you know, I just sort of looked around and was like, there's, there's not a lot of times in a lifetime that an entire industry starts from scratch and can be done the right way, which sounds a lot more interesting than trying to get an old industry to do good things. That's very hard. So anyway, that, uh, that, that was what led me to look in the cannabis space. I found an opportunity at the cannabis, knew a guy who worked at the Denver Post at a high level that I had worked with previously in Austin. Uh, got on the phone and went through the interview process and very quickly got uh, hired on and recruited to Colorado. 
So what'd you, what'd you do for, for the cannabis at, as general manager? Uh, and, and if you can just sort of fill in our listeners on, on what happened uh, to the cannabis, which was really a, an excellent source uh, for, for journalism in the space. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, the cannabis was, uh, I mean, only a nine month experience in my life, which, you know, in cannabis years, we, we talk about it being sort of like dog years. So, you know, extrapolate that it feels like I was spending five years at the cannabis, it was only nine months. Um, <clears throat> that was an epic nine months. Um, I joined the the cannabis right when it was uh, at the peak of its reputation. Um, and its reputation as like sort of the standard bearer for journalism and cannabis. It was uh, launched by the Denver Post. So it was the first um, major mainstream uh, news organization that followed the SBJ code of ethics and, you know, had the old school mastheads. And like they were now launching a, um, you know, a, a, a space just dedicated to cannabis. It was and a big deal. That's a really big deal. It, it even made a bigger deal by the fact that the Denver Post previously came out against 64, which was yeah. the proposition that made cannabis recreationally legal in Colorado, right? So there's a big shift in behavior in mainstream culture that occurred around the cannabis being launched. It was launched by Ricardo Baca, who was the music editor of the the Denver Post for 13 years prior. And just one of the most perfect, like, uh, personalities to be behind such a thing. Um, so, so it had been, uh, in place for about three years, maybe two and a half years by the time I joined on. Um, it needed really its own team and its own leadership. Um, you know, it wasn't so much an extension of the Denver post as it was a startup within the Denver post. And, um, and so the GM role, uh, of these types of projects tends to be a little bit more of a sales role. I wasn't really a salesperson, um, although I had done plenty of sales on my own in my own uh, startups, but I brought content and marketing and branding and this understand of digital media to the table that could really kind of shift the way that the cannabis operated, uh, make it profitable, but also make it profitable without compromising its ethics. And um, so that's what they brought me on to do. I, the, the role of general manager w- with me in place was a little bit more like you know, the, the CEO slash publisher, except that we were within the Denver post. So, um, you know, the actual publisher of the Denver post was the CEO and publisher, uh, on top of all of the properties that came out of the Denver post. Um, but if you took the cannabis and made it its own standalone startup, I would have been, um, you know, the publisher, uh, Ricardo, the editor in chief of our own publication. That's the best way to think about it. Right. That role. Um, Generally, it's a glorified sales director role within, you know, most media publications, but I didn't run it that way. And uh, our team really like understood the value of the cannabis brand in, in, in the industry. And so we did everything we could to elevate that. We, we swung for the fences on a number of different things like the cannabis awards that we held in Vegas or in MJ Biz. And, uh, and it was, you know, really, really starting to soar. But then the corporate overlords of uh, media sort of stepped in and ground their gears the way they do. And, um, you know, the, the, these decisions are made by just to give you a sense of ownership here, the cannabis is owned by the Denver Post, the Denver Post is owned by the second largest media publisher in the United States called Digital First Media, yep. which is owned by an even larger hedge fund called uh, uh, Alden Global, I think uh, is the name of that group. And what they do is they buy newspapers, they, uh, they, they squeeze them down, uh, they, they make sure and, you know, do a series of layoffs and cut expenses so they can generate profitability by 
removing expense. And so a lot of these decisions are made by just evaluating spreadsheets, right? So uh, unfortunately, no matter how good the cannabis was doing for itself, no matter of the fact that it was actually profitable for the first time ever, and was showing, you know, pretty uh, large increases across the board for its numbers, it still wasn't big enough to the overall spreadsheet got crossed off. All of the salespeople were let go. Uh, they dissolved the role of the GM, uh, eventually dissolved the role of the editor-in-chief and all of the dedicated journalists writing for the cannabis. And it just became you know, what it is now, which is uh, a republisher of News on the Wire. And any news that comes out of the Denver Post that has anything to do with the cannabis uh, will be crossed or with cannabis in general will be cross-posted there. But it's not there's no dedicated writing staff to it anymore. There's no. no it was, it was it, a big really. deal when when it you know when it was announced that you know the cannabis has been axed. I mean, it, yeah. it took a lot of people by surprise because of the work that was coming out of there. Totally, yeah, it took us by surprise. I mean, if you had asked me prior, I would have told you I was the safest person at the Denver Post. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I would have told you that the morning I got man. laid off too. <laughs> So, so in your opinion, you know, did the cannabis help break that negative stigma associated with cannabis in Colorado? You know, as you said, uh, they Denver Post uh, came out against Prop sixty four. Um, yeah. You know, a lot of towns and municipalities still don't allow cannabis operations. Uh, right. Did the cannabis, you know, were, were you guys instrumental in sort of, um, you know, normalizing it in in Colorado? You think? I mean, I, I I think so, but it's a, it's a, impossible to quantify. You know what I mean? Uh, in, in other words, I can say yes, but I can't really prove it. <laughs> but the 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 thing about like what the cannabis meant for the Denver Post, at least in and of itself, understanding the Denver Post is like you know sort of the only existing uh, heartbeat of journalism left in that area. Yeah. Um, especially after the Rocky Mountain got closed and, um, you know, the Daily Camera, I think, got folded in. Uh, it really just became the Denver Post. So the, the fact that the Denver Post itself signaled this major change then started to hold like we, we would throw a party in the Denver Post building on the week of 420 to kind of kick off the, <laughs> the holiday. And we literally would get a um, cannabis consumption bus to park in the loading dock of the Denver oh, Post shit. building. And our attendees could come and walk through the Denver Post lobby where we would hold the party to the back loading dock. And we'd have some like foods out there and this consumption bus and they would go and be able to, you know, smoke joints and uh, hit dabs and do a lot of different things there, like on the campus of Denver Post. So, you know, yeah, right. Like to know that they were previously against 64 and then that's where it went is a pretty monumental shift. It's impossible to say whether that had like, this major impact on the mainstream culture at large, but it had to, in my opinion. Um, it, there's the, what, what the cannabis meant outside of Denver was huge. Our, our, our second and third largest um, audience always came from Texas. And we know that Colorado in and of itself has a ton of cannabis tourism. You know, there's a ton of those tourists coming from Texas. So all of the, the reach the cannabis had, even outside of Colorado, helped normalize cannabis for Colorado. And, um, and yeah, I think it's, you know, it, it is really a shame. It's a sad story when it's all said and done, but, uh, what we experienced within that nine months was so special and wonderful. And we knew its value to its greatest extent while we were there with it. And so, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a cherished memory for sure. I don't, I don't think about it negatively other than the fact that it's just sad to know that it's not around and still doing what it should be doing. 
Yeah, it's it, like like I said, I mean, I appreciate the work that you guys did, uh, you know, it, and, and to me, knowing what I know, you know, I'm a media studies professor and I talk about this monopolization. And, and you know, for me, seeing the news that it closed was very sad. But, you know, I you see this all over the country. Um, yeah. But yeah, you can't get too invested with every one of those headlines because you're just going to be sad literally every day. <laughs> so, so let's, let's, uh, let's switch gears a little bit. Tell me about, you know, confident cannabis, you know, what you, what you're doing over there about your role. Uh, it's really interesting. And, and I'm just going to let you blow minds right now. Uh, yeah, well, um, you know, it's a good segue coming out of the cannabis because what I got at the cannabis was access to everybody in the industry for the most part. Um, you know, I was able to see a lot of different companies taking different approaches to solve problems in the industry all over the board. Um, I, I, I was open to working at coming out of the cannabis with any company in the cannabis industry. I really believed in plant touching or not didn't really matter to me. Um, I just wanted it to be a good company. I wanted to be able to have a material impact at that company. Um, and I wanted to know that they had the right belief system in place, not just for what they were building, but like that they were good people, you know, uh, corporate social responsibility is important to me knowing that there's a belief system in place with the company that I can actually like make good things happen is why I came into the industry to begin with. So like, it was important. Anyway, I say all that to preface that to say, like, I was very careful about where I picked my next spot. And um, I had seen a lot of companies come and try to approach the wholesale marketplace, uh, from Trative to LeafLink to, you know, a couple others that came and flamed out. And, um, and, and then I've also seen a lot of other tech companies try to solve a lot of other problems in the cannabis space. Ultimately, like out of all the companies I evaluated, Confident Cannabis stood out to me the, as the most valuable approach to trying to solve some of these fundamental business problems. And it was because of the connection to lab testing. So to tell you what Confident Cannabis is, at least for the listeners, it, we're a software company. We help cannabis businesses test and then buy and sell from one another. Um, the buy and sell part is the wholesale part. But the testing part was a solution we developed because cannabis companies weren't making wholesale trades happen online for a lot of reasons that technology can't solve, like d distrust or not believing that a thing is what someone says it is, or just not even being able to ha have a, a good place that is trustworthy to find uh, you know, products that are only being provided by licensed vendors. And so the, the way to solve that problem isn't very direct. It's not easy to figure out. The, the way we chose to approach it, and the, ultimately the piece of the pie that stuck out to me as so interesting, was that the company built laboratory software first, gave it to Cannabis Labs for almost free or very low cost, depending on what their configuration was. But basically, like we're not trying to make money off lab software. We're doing this as a means to an end. We're going to power you with things that you need. Nobody else is providing it to you. And in turn, we'll be able to get all of this data on, uh, on all the lab tests that are coming through and acquire the pipeline of supply that is about to hit the market. Because every product has to be tested before it can be bought and sold, a test result essentially represents the earliest a product can be available. And so it's like right at the very beginning of the stream, we have a trusted source of information, which is the lab. And we have only licensed uh, producers testing at those labs, giving us their information. And what we do with that information, other than obviously protect it and not share it with the world, is we turn that into uh, inventory that we list on our wholesale marketplace once we launch that. So we've developed now the wholesale marketplace. We've launched it live in Oregon and in Michigan, and we'll be launching in California later this year. 
And what it does is it takes all of the inventory that you test at a Confident Cannabis Partner Lab and immediately shows up in your stock room on, on wholesale so that buyers can find it and put in order requests for it and you can start the business of you know uh, selling to them. And all of the test results are linked to all of those products. So the idea that you know someone doesn't know what something is and what it tests for or that they can trust that those test results are you know not photoshopped and not fudged is all handled by the fact that we have this stream of information coming from the labs. And then you map it, which is um, mm-hmm. the Connect software. Um, and it's to see it in action. I mean, when you were showing me I, just, you know, we were, we were isolating different compounds, uh, you know, based on THC mm-hmm. levels, based on terpenes that a lot of people, you know, aren't really aware of. And, right, right. uh, the, you know, going through strain names, uh, you know, you would have a blue dream that's on one side of the map and then an, another called blue dreams on the other side of the map. So, totally. so tell me about that. Can I, like, like try to explain that in a much more precise way than I <laughs> tried. <laughs> totally, totally. Well, all right. So, um, you know, because of our, uh, uh, connection to the labs, right. Because of the lab software and the amount of labs that we work with, which is, uh, just over half of them nationwide, uh, including Puerto Rico and, and, and British Columbia we have access to this like immense database on cannabis chemistry, um, arguably the largest in the, in the, in the industry because of those relationships. So when you look at cannabis chemistry at large across all the products, the, the one thing that has the most question marks in terms of consistency and predictability is flower, right? When you're using extracts, like you're, you know, producing a pretty consistent outcome, you're using science to determine a, a specific proportion of stuff, right? But flower, um, is, is really quite variable. And, um, the same plant tested over multiple harvests will have different amounts of things within it. The same plant itself, depending on where you pluck a, a bud from, will have slight variations in the chemistry based on, you know, its access to light or water. Um, the, the fact of the matter is that a lot of decisions are made in the cultivation process of flour that determine its outcome in cannabis chemistry. And so when, you, when we looked at just flour, and we looked specifically at flour that's been tested for both cannabinoids and terpenes, which you know the latest uh, research on entourage effects seemed to suggest that those two things together are the best way to really evaluate a predicted effect or you know, flavor or smell of cannabis. So we looked just at flour that had been tested for both cannabinoids and terpenes. And what we noticed was the results were very different, even if they had the same strain name genetics. And, um, and, and we, we wanted to really know why. We also wanted to know what was the you know, overall implication of just you know, being able to see this level of chemistry on flour and what that could mean for the industry. So we developed Connect as a way to take all of that data anonymize it, aggregate it across cannabis flower in the whole nation, at least with enough of the states that we have enough test results that we can show statistic significance of it, uh, of which right now I think we're, we're showing eight, eight recreational states. Um, the, we, we took that data and we put it into a 3D environment so that the, you, could, you could play with the, the universe, rotate, zoom in, zoom out, and really see um, you know, what the differences it are in chemistry are within cannabis flower. And the fact of the matter is that uh, w- when you when you build the data science around this and you place dots that are chemically similar, dots represent a, a strain of flower. When you place strains of flower that are chemically similar together and strains of flower that are chemically dissimilar further apart, the the market turns into a shape, 
right? And there's clustering of certain flowers that produce consistent uh, outcomes uh, based on its chemistry, whether it's CBD dominance or it has a high amount of terpenaline, which gives you that sort of Kimmy um, uh, pine saw smell. Uh, it's really present in Durban Poison and Jack Herrera. Uh, those things tend to pull certain clusters of, of cannabis strains away from the others. And so what Connect shows you is this like shape of the market by its chemistry, which is different than looking at the market by its genetics or looking at it by Indica Sativa Hybrid or any of the other ways that we currently categorize flower. And the reason we did this was because when it comes to understanding flower in general as a product, a lot of the things that we use to describe it are either based on inaccurate or you know uh, incorrect information or are uh, just our best guesses at things, right? So you see Indica Sativa Hybrid is used on like maybe 98% of all cannabis is bought and sold based on those two binaries, the Indica Sativa binary. But anyone who's had enough experience using a number of different products across the cannabis spectrum can tell you that they don't feel just two things from cannabis. They don't always feel a consistent outcome from Indica weed or from Sativa weed. And what that, what that suggests is that the chemistry is different depending on, you know, different outcomes, but that indica and sativa probably don't indicate a really good consistent chemistry. So, uh, so connect was our first way of being able to look at cannabis flower by its chemistry specifically and say, regardless of what the genetics are and regardless of whether it's indica or sativa, let's just see what is, what the chemical outcomes look like, because it's the end product that ultimately matters when a customer's buying it and being able to predict what they're going to get is the hardest thing for them when it comes to buying flour. So that's what Connect represents. And there's a lot of questions and answers. We can dig into a lot more, but the overview is pretty much that. And it's, I mean, you know, getting stoned and playing with this like 3D map, uh, it's, it's, it's interesting. It's fun, right? Yeah. You, know, you know, and a buddy of mine came over the other day and, he, you know, he pulls out something. He's like, oh, it's, it's Purple Kush. And I just look at him I'm like, man, strain names don't matter. And I, yeah, I bring yeah. up Connect and we just start, you know, going through it. And his, and his mind is sort of blown. So, so how can Connect sort of, you know, fix this problem or, or can it fix this problem or help fix this problem with strain names, which, you know, vary right. from state to state, dispensary to dispensary, you know, block to block. Yeah. Yeah. I, I well, so um, I'd love to say that it's going to solve the problem, but I don't think it will. I think it provides a tool to use to solve the problem. Um, but, you know, right now, the biggest problem we face is that there's this bridge that needs to be crossed between what the consumer currently understands about cannabis and what we with this database understand about cannabis or, you know, the major educators in the space understand or even most retailers, right? Like if you talk to most retailers, they know that Indica Sativa doesn't mean anything. Yeah. If you talk to most growers, they'll tell you that too. But they'll also tell you people buy based on this. So this is what we're doing. So there's got to be a give, like it's a chicken and egg problem, right? Who's going to lead the consumer to understand what they need to understand? And is it going to be actually knowing what the cannabinoids and terpenes are? Probably not. Um, what this tool can do, however, is armed into the hands of educators and retailers and industry insiders and writers is provide a basis for which we can start to educate the consumer into understanding what truly matters. And, um, and, and there's still like, you know, evolution that's going to occur in the industry here. 
Um, some retailers are already getting hip to some of these things, and some cultivators are. In, in Oregon, especially, I've seen the most of this, where they're deciding to to push ahead despite the fact that customer interest seems to show that they only care about high THC numbers. And what they're doing is reforming the way that they fill their shelves. So if you look at pharma uh, in, in Portland, F-A-R-M-A, or if you look at Sarah, S-E-R-R-A in Portland, these are two different retailers that are, that are leading with the chemistry and they're showing cannabinoids and terpenes and helping customers to understand you know, sort of what that means and why, why they need to know it. Um, but really like, I mean, I'm a, I'm a huge cannabis nerd and I've used cannabis a lot. Uh, I've tested myself across multiple different strains. Um, what I learned before I even got connect was that I can use my nose to determine the cannabis I should stay away from and the cannabis I should gravitate towards for multiple different uses. That's not to say that I just smell it and it makes my brain feel good because uh, I think a lot of people use the nose, nose, uh, uh, adage a little bit incorrectly. The nose doesn't always know. You have to train the nose what to look for. And then the nose becomes a really good chemistry detection tool. So I learned specifically I should avoid orange smelling strains, even if I, might, even if I like the smell of them. Orange geeks me out. Um, but if it's like you know a berry smell or sort of an earthy, funky smell, uh, that will help me be productive. Um, if I want to get stoned happy and giggle at really shitty, stupid, funny movies, then I'm going to smoke a lemon strain. Um, if I want to, um, you know, sort of it, it, it enjoy a long walk in the woods, um, you know, I might I might focus a little bit more on uh, on the the spicier strains, uh, you know, the the blackberry cushions, the blueberry cookies things like that. So like I learned that through my own journaling and through smelling every single strain and writing down what, you know, uh, whether I liked it or not and and what I liked about it, I found consistencies and and that's how I determine how I buy. Then I got connect and I was able to learn what it was that my nose was detecting, right? I could find a bunch of different strains that I've tried. I could see what they had in common. I could see what they didn't have in common. And what I've learned is that I actually need to stay away from uh, terpenaline as a terpene. Um, I need to stay away from only limonene dominant strains as a terpene, but that the strains I actually do like have a combination of limonene, myrcene, uh, beta-caryophylline, a little bit of linalool, a little bit of alpha-beta-pinene, and CBG, and no THCV, right? So like... What I was able to do was, um, you know, as just a, a general consumer, journal and figure out what I liked using my nose. Then I taught my nose what it was it was detecting and used Connect to kind of unlock what it was I was finding about this stuff. And that's allowed me to realize strain name doesn't matter anymore. Genetics don't matter anymore. What matters is what is the actual chemistry of that plant? And when I go into a dispensary now... I can either tell a really informed bud tender, here's what I'm looking for, or I can smell it myself and figure it out already on my own. Um, so th there's so much discovery that needs to be had here, and there's so much education that needs to be had here. Um, Connect is the only thing that doesn't try to make too many assumptions about what all this information means and just says, here's the information. Um, you're going to do with it what you will. And the reason why that's important is because the other way to address this problem in the industry has been to say, this is the predicted effect you're going to have. This is going to make you feel calm. This is going to make you feel enlightened. But my wife and I feel two totally different things yeah. if we smoke the same strain, yeah. right? What does that mean? That means our brain chemistries are different or our body's metabolisms are different or our response to these compounds is going to be 
uh, customized based on you know just what's going on inside our system. As we know, cannabis is really good at finding homeostasis, but what homeostasis is it going to find? It depends on what you need to balance, right? And that's going to be different in each person. So I don't think we can even tell people this is what you're going to feel until we start having like significant human trials done. So I think like that's a step too far. I think saying <laughs> indica sativa matters is not true. So we need to find somewhere in the middle to be. Connect is like the tool to help provide information on what that middle looks like. But I, I personally think it's going to take people understanding how aroma and chemistry relate to get there. So you you had mentioned uh, Maricine, uh you know, quickly. Uh, tell me about the, you guys found a link between Maricine, which is a terpene, and, and Nevada, uh, which mm-hmm. visualized on the map. Uh, it's Explain that 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 link and and you know sort of why it might matter in some way. Yeah, well, there's a lot of things that make Nevada in particular unique. Um, one other thing that you'll notice out of Nevada is that most of the THCV dominant strains are being produced there. That I don't know why. Uh, well, actually, I can I can uh, I can throw a couple assumptions out there, but but specifically, myrcene is really interesting in Nevada. Um, one thing to know first and foremost about Nevada is that it's the only state that requires terpene testing on all products um, as part of the regulations. So it's the only state where when you go to buy cannabis flower, whether you want to or not, you're going to see these chemicals listed, you know, uh, at least the top three or five listed on the actual package itself. That in and of itself is already a step in the right direction to teaching the consumers what to look for. So Nevada cannabis consumers are arguably the most uh, widely educated on terpenes than any other cannabis consumer for this reason alone. And so they know what myrcene is. Um, there, there was a study that was done, and I think really only one study that shows this, where they took rats and they gave half the rats phenobarbital and the other rats phenobarbital with a heavy injection of just myrcene alone. And they found that the rats that got the myrcene injection were slightly more sedated and anesthetized than the ones who didn't. And that study has become now the quote unquote scientific argument for myrcene making you higher or more stoned and more sedate. So when you couple the knowledge of what myrcene is in the, in the state with this supposed study that people are sharing about myrcene getting you a stonier high, and you've got a state that's already, you know, predisposed towards high THC amounts and, you know, just, I mean, it's Nevada, people like to get faced on whatever it is they're going to they're going to take right um, it, it it makes this perfect little storm there's one extra little bit about it which is that Ed Rosenthal some time ago made up a, a thing that was sort of like a, an insider joke i think but uh, he he made up a story about how if you eat mangoes when you smoke weed you get higher because mangoes have myrcene in them um, and, and folks ran with that for whatever reason. <laughs> and so you couple that with these other, um, uh, factors and people in Nevada, you know, started to like really get hype on myrcene. A cultivator at the same time realized this was happening and started to develop extremely myrcene dominant strains of cannabis called head cheese. Um, and so th- there's like, um, they, they won an award. They were published in one of the local mags about, winning like best strain of Las Vegas or best strain of Nevada, something like that. And they promoted it and their myrcene content as an individual terpene content outpaces overall terpene content in most flower everywhere. 
like between four and seven percent of just myrcene alone is uh, is what their test results have shown. And uh, you know, I've got friends who live in Nevada, and they constantly keep an eye on this stuff, and they'll buy new products. And uh, one of them showed me a picture of a product of head cheese that had seven percent myrcene reported Oof. on it. I just couldn't believe it. Uh, but it's true. And that's uh, off the charts, it, right? Like it, it is astronomical. What you see. Astronomical. Yeah. If you see 4% overall terpene content in a flower, that's a really terpy flower. Uh, most terps uh, show overall content somewhere between like say one and 3% if a producer really cares about per- terpene content. That's like the average, right? Um, but an individual terpene is rarely over 1% of the total you know, volume of the terpenes content. So to see one terpene reach 4 to 7% individually is so far off the charts, it's out of control. So, you know, like there's a reason that's happening and it's because all of these things sort of have combined into this perfect storm of this thing is super hype in Nevada. And I don't see any other states where a single individual compound receives that much hype outside of just THC. Um, uh, you know, or CBD, I guess, but, uh, but still people aren't buying CBD flour. Like they are demanding myrcene flour in Nevada. And I think the reason why THCV is so popular in Nevada is because there's this other, um, assumed outcome of THCV that it suppresses appetite. And when you think about like, you know, Las Vegas and, you know, being, uh, as glamorous as possible, uh, also having, you know, a significant amount of female users, uh, in Nevada, um, you know, the idea of having something that doesn't give you the munchies is pretty huh. appealing. Right. And so that's what they think THCV does again, haven't had enough human trials to confirm any of this stuff, but that's the common held, uh, assumption that the, that's what those compounds do. And so, uh, they're both particularly, uh, popular there. So with all the strains that, that you see coming in and you map them, you know, what, what lesser uh, cannabinoids are, are becoming more popular with cultivators? Is there one that's sort of... Uh, yeah, that's yeah, a good question. So um, uh, THCV definitely is, is hitting its come up. Um, they're uh, not just in Nevada, but even here in California, there's a producer called Level who has released um, uh, a number of different products, some of them that are like tabs, like sublingual tabs that have THCV uh, as the main uh, uh, compound, Um, also CBG. Um, In fact, I think uh, there are a couple cultivators, one at least I know of in Oregon that that are developing CBG dominant plants, which would be the first time I've ever heard of such a thing. Um, CBG is an interesting compound because it does a lot of the same things CBD does. Uh, there are a few things it does a little bit differently, but it looks like CBG might actually be a neuroregenerator, uh, which means that it can actually help generate new brain cells. Uh, whereas CBD, uh, stops the degeneration of brain cells. It doesn't necessarily regenerate new ones. So, yeah, so CBG is pretty cool. Um, there's still, again, so much more research needs to be done to confirm most of the stuff, but uh, that's a minor known cannabinoid. Um, in the extraction process, Delta-8 THC has started to become really popular. Um, you're not seeing that in flower, but like uh, when they, they'll, they'll make distillate of, of uh, Delta-8 now. Uh, a number of companies, Guild Extracts in Northern California is one of them that's really popular. Um, that's getting really popular because it's not so stony. Uh, supposedly people who report having like, a you know, like a half high, you know, nice elevated, a little bit higher than like a CBD strain, a little bit less high than, a, you know, a 20%, uh, flower. 
So that's pretty interesting. Uh, those are those are right now the, what we're seeing as the major minor cannabinoids that are like sort of receiving popularity and uh, being developed in in the world. And I could sit here and talk to you for another thirty five minutes. Uh, easy. Yeah, me too. Man. <laughs> uh, you know, I'm definitely gonna have a you know see when we can link up on this again because because there's so much more to talk about i mean we got this list here and we got through like three things um (laughs) tell me what advice would you have uh for entrepreneurs looking to answer the space you know you're a entrepreneur you've you've been in you know i mean you're at the cannabis i mean you filled so many roles now you're in sort of a a tech you know yeah so so what advice would you have for people who are looking to enter the space yeah, I guess it depends on what the entry point is going to be. Um, so uh, I, I probably Let's have a little tech. bit. Of different... Yeah, if you're if you're entering the tech space, like here's the biggest thing that that turned me off to most tech companies in cannabis was that they were doing something that already exists everywhere else and just doing the cannabis version of it, whether it's a loyalty program or a POS or you know something that's just been like it, been evolved on for decades now that all it takes is one of those major players just deciding to enter the space and then you just get blown away by them. Um, you know, th- there's a lot of companies that are doing that. I find that very uninteresting. The thing that Confident Cannabis did that I found very interesting as a process, and this is the process I would advise for any entrepreneur trying to create anything tech-related in cannabis, is find out what problems you're trying to solve before you try to create something to solve them. And that requires, before you even say, this is the thing I want to do, ask a bunch of people what their biggest problems are, you know, um, talk to, you know, the cannabis industry that you might be servicing and find out what their life is like. Don't assume that, you know, the problems that they're facing because they're general business problems. Don't assume that, you know, that, um, you know, what it's like to be a cultivator because you've, you know, worked at a cultivation once, right? Like there's, there's an understanding here that like, there's a lot of variance that occurs in the cannabis industry. Everyone approaches it differently. We haven't figured out like the perfect way to operate in any given state, let alone across the nation. And that's always going to be evolving. So the, it's important to realize that we don't know everything and we actually don't know anything. And the only way to know something is to ask a lot of people who actually deal with it, what they're dealing with. This is a problem that I feel like if everybody took this approach to everything in their life, they'd be a lot better off. (laughs) You know what I mean? Right? Before you open your mouth, maybe you should talk to people who are dealing with a thing before you give your opinion on it. I I just taught a class on a a manual Kant, and I'm just sitting here like, Brad Bogus, he's a a manual (laughs) Kant. Yeah, I never uh, thought I was a Kantian uh, philosopher, but apparently, yeah, if if, if the shoe fits, right? Like, the, the point is, like, ask questions learn, humble yourself before people who have done this. Um, and when you really listen, you might find something super interesting that nobody's really figured out yet. That's how we did what we did at Confident Cannabis was by not just hearing that people need wholesale fixed, but why they don't do wholesale business. Why don't cannabis uh, businesses buy from each other online? And the reasons why is not because there wasn't a place to do it. It's because of other fundamental reasons that required a special solution to solve that nobody can solve from outside the industry. And that's why this company interests me so much. But you know, if you're going to create something new for the industry, don't try to just create what's already been done and apply it to the cannabis space. Uh, don't be a green rusher, right? Like really yeah. actually care about the industry, care about the producers and their families, care about what innovations they're creating, be genuinely the most curious you can possibly be. And you'll find authentic things that you can create that actually will help solve the problem and not just waste money. 
Well, dude, it's it's been really great to have uh, you on the show. Like I said, I could I, we could keep talking for for another thirty minutes, you know, and then we'd have to p- pull up video and start bouncing around. <laughs> connect, it would, it would get lost pretty quick. Uh, that's Brad yeah. Bogus. He's the vice president of marketing for Con- Confident Cannabis. He's uh, apparently an Emmanuel Kantian. Uh, thank you so much <laughs> for uh, being on the Entrepreneur Podcast, man. I, I really appreciate it, and look forward to talking to you again. Yeah, man, anytime. I'm looking forward to it as well. You can find more episodes of the Gontrepreneur.com podcast in the podcast section of Gontrepreneur.com and in the Apple iTunes store. On the Gontrepreneur.com website, you'll find the latest cannabis news and cannabis jobs updated daily along with transcripts of this podcast. You can also download the Gontrepreneur.com app in iTunes and Google Play. This episode was engineered by Trim Media House. I've been your host, T.G. Brandfold. <laughs>